Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton, and I want to talk about an upcoming BIV event, February 28th at the Shangri-La Hotel. The newspaper is facilitating an expert retirement ready panel discussion on how and when to retire and how to embrace what should be the most triumphant years of a longer life. You can find out more details at BIV.com slash events. And today, we're going to take a deep dive into the situation with Huawei. The U.S. Department of Justice has just laid out a case against CFO Meng Wanzhou. She's out on bail here in Vancouver. And the DOJ is also laying out more charges against the Chinese telecom giant. Our tech panel will join us to discuss that and more in just a moment. But first, one other event to highlight, February 21st at the Shangri-La Hotel, another expert panel, this time focused on due diligence and valuation when buying a business. More details at BIV.com slash events. Now let's go ahead and talk to our tech panel. And with us now for the BIV tech panel, it is Ali Pordad, CEO of Progressa. He is calling in from Toronto today. We also have with us Linda Focus here in studio. She is the CEO of Glue Technology Society. Linda Ali, thanks both of you guys for joining us on the show. Thanks, Tyler. Thank you. So Huawei, so much to recap. I'll try to do the Cliff's Notes version here, but the U.S. Department of Justice on Monday outlined its case against both the CEO Meng Wanzhou, as well as a separate case against Huawei with allegations. It was trying to steal T-Mobile's robotic technology. So I'll start off with you uh, here, Linda. I mean, with what went down yesterday, does it seem as if the Americans are still kind of playing politics right here as they have ongoing trade negotiations? Or does it show that maybe they are really serious about going after what they seem to see as a bad actor here? I think the indictments that came down against Ms. Meng show that the U.S. think or are positioning Huawei as a bad actor. And I believe it's a, a game of chess, not checkers with their security agency trying to ensure the uh, whoever owns the 5G network is ruled and dominated by America and its allies. Hey, what's your initial take on this one, Ali? Oh, well, I, I think those are two different things, Linda. I mean, in my view, those sound like two potentially different topics. Uh, you know, it, to me, this is it's it's tough to it's tough to pinpoint exactly what's going on here. But to me, it's it's looking more and more like a political gesture and really less to do with potential vulnerabilities that, that I think were first described. I mean, I know we first spoke about uh, Huawei pr- probably several months back, maybe if not last year, and all the focus was on security, security. But you can sort of see now that they're in the midst of these political negotiations and tensions are high, it sort of seems a little bit convenient that uh, Huawei has become the center of attention and that they uh, that they took these steps to go after them. So. I'm sort of somewhere in the middle. Like, I, it's hard to it's hard to pinpoint exactly what's going on, but I would not put it past the Trump administration if this is all politics. Well, speaking of being in the middle of things, Canada right now is very poorly positioned. Uh, we're a small country. We're stuck right between these two giant countries. Is there really any way out at this point, Linda? We are stuck right in between. We might be in an interesting position. We were going to be the nation that, that showcased Huawei's 5G technology to the world outside of China. 
um, deals with TELUS and their 5G living labs showing what 5G technology can look like. And now uh, Canada has pressure from its allies, the Five Eyes Network, Intelligence Network, yeah. met last summer. And all of them except Canada agreed that Huawei was a security threat against the 5G uh, network. So that needed to be looked at. So Canada's in a very interesting position. They need to make a statement. Are they going to align themselves with the UK and the US and Germany against uh, potential invasive threats into future 5G technology networks? Or are they going to be the showcase for Huawei outside of Asia? I find it hard to believe Canada will side against its allies in this very uh, century-defining network building moment. Do you think then, Ali, in your opinion, companies like, say, TELUS and Bell, which have invested big with Huawei at this point, building up this 5G network, Rogers, uh, for the record, they haven't gone down the Huawei road, uh, route at this point. But Ali, do you think that there is a big potential for Bell and TELUS to lose a lot of money with these investments if Canada eventually bans it? I think it's definitely a possibility, and uh, those companies and investors probably need to be keeping an eye on this story and watching it quite carefully. I'd actually be interested to see what's been happening with uh, both of those companies' stocks. Um, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, I, I, I fully expect that um, if these companies have made large investments in Huawei and infrastructure related to uh, their their 5G uh, network, um, that there is some big downside risk right now for those companies. Uh, this, this is, I don't think Canada can win in this situation. I, I just don't see a, an outcome here where it's going to be positive because even if, uh, even if Huawei gets their way, then Canada is potentially jeopardizing relationships with uh, much, much larger trade partners. Um, and where, where those trade partners win, uh, Canada is also a very big trade partner with China and also has a, a vested interest uh, in, uh, in seeing this be successful. I mean, these, these companies have invested large amounts of money in the infrastructure. So I just don't see a route here out of this at this point. And it looks like the route to removing this equipment is um, the price tag is about a billion dollars. So who would cover that to rip out all the antennas in the network that has been installed well, in Canada to create this 5G test? So that really begs a question, though, and you were alluding to this earlier, Linda, though, are, are we well on our way to having, I guess, two spheres of influence with regards to 5G, one in which, you know, Huawei is able to get, you know, their, their foot in the door for a lot of other countries, and another where other players are going with, say, a Nokia, for example, an Ericsson, for example, to build their 5G network, Samsung. I'm just wondering if there's going to eventually be two different networks that just aren't interoperable with regards to 5G and what that maybe means for communication, innovation going forward. What's your take on this, Ali? Well, I mean, there already is, is that concept in uh, the telecommunications industry. I mean, there's not just one network uh, that, that sort of dictates all uh, traffic communication. There's, there's actually several. Uh, and there, I know there some of them are sort of different, uh, different technologies and, and sort of different uh, uh, generations of technology as well. But that concept has always existed. So I would not be surprised uh, moving to 5G if you saw that disparity sort of continue. Uh, what it would mean is, is sort of the same impracticalities that we've always dealt with as consumers, largely uh, related to, you know, you have to move your cell phone from one provider to another. You can't just take your telephone and use it for Rogers. Uh, that's sort of at the very basic level. And then obviously, uh, much deeper than that, there's a lot of infrastructure investment and chaos that occurs by these 
companies when they're building these infrastructures uh, that impact uh, real people. Yeah, and I think there's going to be two 5G networks that cover the planet, one sided by the Chinese technology and one through the allied technology, if we want to use the Cold War metaphor here. But uh, before we jump to the next topic, though, Linda, do you think things are going to get worse for Canada from a maybe political perspective? And even to a certain degree, if we think about maybe trade relations uh, with regards to our relationship with China? Yes, yeah. I think so. I, I, I just, who who knows how this is eventually going to get settled, but I, I don't think Canada is any sort of good position at all. And, and I don't know, it's between a rock and a hard place and we're getting crushed right now. Yes. Yeah. So guys, the other interesting thing that I found fascinating, this uh, story on CNBC, talking about Facebook culture clash here, where salespeople were taking clients into the commissary shared with the engineers. And well, the engineers are walking around with shoe, without shoes on, in bare feet, actually walking into bathrooms with bare feet on. Engineers were saying, no, we need to be comfortable. Salespeople are like, well, we've got clients. Come on, let's have some professionalism. It sparked a big internal debate there. And eventually what we find, you know, a group like Facebook, they're essentially just keeping them divided as much as they can. They, they don't want to have so much integration. I'm just wondering, Ali, is that a practical thing to do from a corporate culture standpoint? Is there middle ground to be had or does it just make sense to kind of keep these two groups divided? Yeah, no, I think it depends on the company itself, Tyler, and its size and scope and, and its reach. I think a company of Facebook stature with all the tens of thousands of employees it has uh, worldwide, uh, it, you know, I don't think there's any way you can avoid a sort of a culture clash in your organization. You're, you're just inherently going to have different cultures uh, based on, on all kinds of different variables that impact a, a company of that size. So I don't think it's practical necessarily for sort of Mark Zuckerberg to stay up at night and try to solve that problem. I think it's more important that uh, they they have, you know, as, as far as the, the company is concerned, as, as consistent, uh, you know, a communication strategy and internal strategy as possible. They want to try to create that consistency so that there's not obvious, uh, you know, obvious blips like this, uh, like this issue that's occurred with their engineers walking around without uh, shoes in their cafeteria where their salespeople are. I think that's, uh, you know, that's just an obvious, uh, an obvious example of why uh, that consist- that consistency of, of communication strategy is required. Uh, but I, I, I don't think anybody should uh, sort of kid themselves. Uh, a company of this or of this size, even smaller companies for that matter, that are in multiple locations, are always going to experience, for the most part, uh, a slightly different culture. Yeah, Linda, I recall about 10 years ago, I was working for a very large tech company here in Vancouver, and we would have to have like team team building exercises. And I don't know, for, I guess, back then, a relatively young guy, I I just kind of rolled my eyes on a lot of this stuff. I I wasn't fully embracing it. How practical is it, you know, with regards to a lot of the efforts to make it more of a cohesive culture? Are there just going to be natural divisions between people based on, I don't know, what, what kind of proclivities they have or whether they're right side of the brain or left side of the brain? Well, these are very different types of people, people who go into uh, engineering and software development and the people who choose to sell the products these smart people are creating. I think that it's, um, it's important to keep the cultures together, though. What makes a strong company is when we have 
the engineers talking to the sales guys and the sales guys talking to the engineers. These are the salespeople are the people who can deliver the message from the customer side. This is what customers are actually doing with your product. And here are the use cases. They're, they're using it on the fringes of what you guys have imagined for development. And the engineers should be listening to that. If a company's smart, they're going to have these uh, two groups aligned and shortcut that process from customer feedback to product development and, and the other way around. So, uh, Ali, right now you're in Toronto. You're fighting off the snow the best you can. Uh, you have my sympathy. You have uh, Linda's sympathy because it, it's beautiful in Vancouver <laughs> the past few days. But uh, let's say you're, you're able to uh, jump into a car and uh, you have maybe the insurance company watching every move you did using technology, using telematics, where there's a bit of a combination between a device as well as your smartphone interacting in it actually gives you the opportunity to have a bit of a discount. ICBC, they are launching a pilot later on this summer. From your perspective, Ali, would you be interested in considering telematics in your car if it meant a sizable discount up to 25% off your insurance? Yeah, I mean, I think the current version of myself would like to see this, but I don't think the 16-year-old version of myself uh, would want to <laughs> would want this uh, watching watching my driving habits. Uh, but yeah, that's the reality of it. I mean, when I first read this article and the technology that they were proposing, it sort of got me thinking of the, of the blockchain actually, and and sort of democratizing uh, how insurance works. And this is sort of a great example of of the potential um, for technology to uh, help help people save money. I mean, at the end of the day, if, if you're a safe driver and you're out there and uh, in and uh, you are not causing any uh, real risk to, uh, to other cars or to yourself, then your insurance rates probably should be uh, significantly lower than others. But I guess the other side of, uh, of this whole concept, proposed concept, is how do you sort of get everybody um, to, uh, to sort of get in line with this? Because if you don't, uh, I think, you know, what you have is you'll have people that are on this program that are safe drivers that are really driving their own rates down and then, you know, the money's got to come from somewhere. So you'd have to think presumably that rates would be higher for people that don't opt in. So I just don't know that, don't know if this is actually a practical, uh, you know, a practical rollout. There's a practical rollout strategy for this, but on the, on the face of it, it sounds like it could be very great for the people that are safe drivers. So wait, are, are you suggesting that ICBC might have problems with uh, their financials, Ali? I, I've never heard such an accusation <laughs> before. I like the gamification of driving for the new drivers with it. Yeah, well, as maybe somebody with a teenager, would you be happy knowing that, like, say your son uh, was, you know, being subject to telematics? Yeah, my son is an end, an end driver still. Um, no offense to him, but he's he's an end driver, sure. yeah. <laughs> uh, busy at university. But um, the restrictions that the end places on the kids, a lot of parents like. And this telematic device in the car is they're learning to drive to give them feedback on their driving habits while they're learning would be an amazing thing for parents. Anything to get us out of the nagging loop uh, would be very uh, worthwhile and a great way for these kids to learn how to drive properly. Yeah. So honestly, yeah, I, Linda. Yeah, that's a great point, Linda. I actually think that that's probably the practical place for this to start is just almost forcing it on that sort of age group between 16 and maybe 18, or I'm not sure if it's an age group around the uh, the new the new driver program, or if it's just depends on your on your uh, on on your driving um, record. But that that makes perfect sense to me right at the beginning. 
Well, the early indication is from an earlier pilot that ICBC conducted is that people just knowing that there are the telematics recording their driving, it actually has kind of a psychological effect on them. They, they are more careful as they're going about in the streets. So I think it's something worth exploring. I'm very curious what the results are going to be when ICBC releases the results from the telematics. I think we'll get a better idea of that going forward. But until then, I'm, I'm going to continue to drive carefully as best I can. I think that's a smart thing to do in the meantime. But uh, Ali and Linda, I want to thank both of you guys for joining us on the program today. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that's Linda Focus, CEO of Glue Technology Society, and Ali Portad, CEO of Progressa. And that is it for the show today. We're back tomorrow. And for now, you can find our archives on iTunes and Stitcher. And we'd also encourage you to share with your friends and leave a review as it's going to help others find this podcast. For now, I'm Tyler Orton. Thanks for listening.